Hey, it's Keith here, inviting you to imagine that Live from the Lounge is actually live and that you're with us in person. Sounds nice, right? You got a cool summer drink in your hand, you're swaying to the music, laughing a little, and we come to the moment in the show where we pass around a hat and ask you to share with us as we've shared with you. How much would you put in the hat? 10, 20, 100 bucks? There's no judgment, no pressure. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll consider dropping a little something in our virtual hat at livefromtheloungepodcast.com. The donate button's right at the top of the landing page. It's quick and easy, and it's greatly appreciated. Hey there. Welcome to The Lounge. I'm your host, Keith Farley, just back from a week at Lake Tahoe with my family. And while it wasn't as long a break as I might have liked, I'm still basking in the glow of gorgeous sunsets, lovely weather, and bottles and bottles of wine shared with people I love. And like any good vacation, it was filled with stories, songs, and conversations that connect us in a million different ways. The theme of this month's lounge is Take a Break. And in the spirit of that sentiment, we're taking a break ourselves and presenting you with an unashamed and unabashed Best of the Lounge episode. We'll return to Thanksgiving for a musical story that Matt and Carol almost wrote with Brendan Milburn. It's one of the funniest pieces we've ever presented, and there's no doubt that it belonged on our Best of the Lounge. I'll revisit my time at marching band camp to remind us that taking the first step is often the most difficult part of the journey. We'll hear David O. and Michelle East talk about their journey through the pandemic as parents and theater professionals. And we'll revisit lots of our favorite musical offerings from John Ballinger, Ruby Farley, Val Vigoda, Ryan O'Connell, and of course, Double Batch Daddy. So, here we are. It's August already. Sunrise in Los Angeles came at 6.08, and it sets tonight at 7.48. And while the days may be getting shorter, they're certainly not getting any cooler. The warmth we celebrated in May and June is starting to wear out its welcome, and we wonder if the blistering heat is ever going to end. It's this time of year when construction crews start their days at sunrise and knock off after lunch. Similarly, farmers and ranchers are up before dawn to get the watering in and the animals fed. Many of them head off to local, county, and state fairs to show off their livestock and take a break from the heat to the fields. In New York City, folks with money head for Long Island or the Hamptons to cool off and rub shoulders with the elite. Well, the rest of us might head for the mountain or beach retreats that are publicly owned. My working-class grandparents belonged to an organization called Nature Friends. It was a collective that was born in Austria and Germany in the early 1900s, Der Nature Freunden. The working folks organized themselves and pitched in money to purchase land in the Alps and build communal lodges on the properties. Each of the members paid yearly dues, as well as modest usage fees for the time spent at the lodges, and everyone was required to perform a few hours of work to keep the property spick and span. Nature Friends operates in the U.S., too. Here in California, they maintain lodges in Muir Woods, Idlewild, Sierra Madre, and Oakland. 
A family membership is only 50 bucks a year, and the usage fees are in the $20 to $50 range if you sleep over. Camping, as we discussed, is also an excellent option for a getaway on a budget. Sites at national and state parks are around 40 bucks a night, and will place you in some of the most beautiful locations on the planet. Our family has camped literally on the beach at the ocean, as well as in a grove of redwoods and at the shores and banks of alpine lakes, rivers, meadows, and creeks. We always opt for flush toilets and hot showers on site, but if you want to get rustic, you can get even further away from the blasting heat of summer. Or perhaps a staycation is the best way to go. Splurge on a little extra AC and binge all those shows you missed while you guzzle iced tea and work your way through a giant bag of popsicles. Maybe fish for an invite from that friend with a pool. Or head to your local public pool for a long soak. Take in a matinee at the movies. Go to the mall for some window shopping. Make a lunch reservation at that restaurant you've always wanted to try. However you do it, and wherever you do it, you've got to find a way to beat the heat in August because every day is a sunshine day. Here's a song about that that was inspired by my love of the Brady Bunch and the early music of the police. John Ballinger made it a blistering reality with the help of Laura Martin on vocals. It's a sunshine day. They're two of the funniest, cleverest, and smartest folks I know. Each of their offerings to the lounge has been unique, from Matt's story of his unexpected and transformative layover in Narita, Japan, to Carol's withering evisceration and simultaneous heartfelt respect for Mother's Day. 
to the story of their hysterical and death-defying adventure to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I'm grateful for all they've shared with us over the past two years, but what you're about to hear is hands down my favorite radio show that we produced together because it really captures how smart and funny and silly they both are. It's from our Thanksgiving lounge, and it begins just as the meal is wrapping up. Mm, I can't believe it. So stop. This is so good. That was delicious. Here, here. Best rib roast ever. Thank you. I just Googled a bunch of different recipes. This one was strangely precise. Well, it worked. This is... This is really nice. It is. I mean, last year we were all separated from each other, but now we're together. We can break bread together and talk and hug. And I... I just want to say that I'm really thankful for that. I love everyone sitting here at this table. We love you too, Tracy. We love you. We love you, Tracy. Well, if we're talking about what we're thankful for, I mean, I agree fully with Tracy, but I will add that I'm grateful for this food. And not just because I cooked most of it. (laughs) (laughs) We're just very fortunate. Yes, we are. Well, I'll state the obvious after the year and a half we've been through and say that I'm thankful for my health. For our health. Yes. That's a good one. What about you, Brendan? Yes, Brendan, you've been very quiet. You've just been sitting there for the last hour, staring quietly into space. Yes. Tell us, Brendan, what are you thankful for? Huh, that's a great question. These past 18 months have been a deeply introspective time for me. Our world has been turned upside down, and I've been reflecting about what matters most in my life. I would love to share those reflections with you. Before I do, could you do me a favor? Sure. Could you plug this in for me? Uh, oh, yeah. No problem. Thank you. The Learning Channel was founded in 1980. It quickly achieved the fastest rate of growth of all basic cable programming services. The channel mostly featured documentary content pertaining to science, history, current events, medicine, technology, cooking, home improvement, and other information-based topics. In 1992, the network's name was shortened to TLC. Perhaps due to poor ratings, starting the late 1990s, TLC explored new avenues, de-emphasizing educational content in favor of reality drama and interior design shows. Some of their biggest hits were shows like Trading Spaces, Junkyard Wars, John and Kate Plus H, Toddlers and Tiaras, and Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. Ah, God. Toddlers Uh, and Tiaras. The worst. John and Kate plus eight? Yeah, sure. Garbage. Everything Who watches this Disgusting. Excuse me. I'm not finished. Sorry. In 2014, TLC debuted a new show, which currently scores higher ratings than almost any other basic cable program. It's about two people who are falling in love, trying their best to make it work. It's a girl from some country very far away With a guy who's a colossal jerk It's a romance where they barely know each other But she still travels to his distant town And they can't really speak each other's languages And you can't help wondering How's it all gonna 
finances 90 days to make sure that their love was meant to be What are you talking about? Brendan, are you okay? Do you need a glass of water? I think I know. There's a show on TLC called 90 Day Fiancé. Joy Lynn and Deborah told me about it. Oh, man. Joy Lynn and Deborah. <laughs> of course. Anyway, it's about Americans who get engaged to people from other countries. And then they apply for what's called a K-1 visa, which allows the fiancé to enter the U.S. If they don't get married within 90 days, however, the fiancé has to return to their country. Wait. Did you watch it? I watched 10 minutes and just couldn't take it. I don't care if you think it's garbage. I don't care if you think it's trite. I'll keep watching the slow motion train wreck they make of their lives if it takes all night. Every episode, all eight seasons, 16 spin-offs, I have seen them all. Cause it makes me feel better about myself. Yeah, it makes me feel better about myself. Oh, it makes me feel better about myself. It makes my problems all feel pretty small. Compared to a 58-year-old piano rental company entrepreneur and his lady from the Philippines. It's so awkward when his daughter's in her 20s and his fiance is only 19. Or a single mom from Bradenton, Florida, out of breath on a sand dune in Morocco. Her fiancé's helpful advice is, hey babe, maybe more CrossFit and a little less taco. Or a dude who makes a living selling weed in SoCal with a woman from Ukraine or maybe Belarus. And she keys the word idiot into the door of his Mercedes so she might have a screw or two loose. Or the young guy from Tunisia who moves to Ohio and discovers things are just a bit odd. Where his fiancée is a middle-aged mother of four She writes a lot of bad checks and commits a lot of credit card fraud And they only have 90 days to make their wedding happen They only have 90 days to make up, break up, fight and disagree 90 days to discover that their fiancée is already married So what I'm understanding, Brendan, is that the thing you are most thankful for in your life right now is the reality show 90 Day Fiancé, which is broadcast on the TLC network. Yes, that's correct. Wow. Uh, I, uh, I don't know, Brendan. I mean, why? Perhaps I'm just shallow, finding joy in the misfortune of these would-be husbands and wives. Perhaps I am warming my cold, lonely hands at the dumpster fire they've made of their lives. Perhaps I watch too much TV. Actually, not perhaps, I'm pretty certain. But Matthew made a good point earlier. It's been 18 months of despair and hurting. So I'm thankful for Larissa and Colty, Danielle and Muhammad, George and Anfisa. For letting the world cheer them on as they try to make good on the K-1 visa. And you might be surprised to discover that most of these couples have come through okay. They overcame obstacles, the doubt of their friends and families. And they got married and stayed married to this day. Wow, is that true? Uh-huh. And you know what? They did it in 90 days, they made their wedding happen. Details filmed for cable TV They did it in 90 days And then they each made a fortune 
and on social media They have just 90 days to make sure that their love was meant to be Thanks for sharing, Brendan. Cheers, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Are any of you watching Squid Game? Matt and Carol Almos wrote 90 Days, and Brendan Milburn arranged the music and performed the song of the same name. You heard Tracy Lee, Matthew Montgomery, Carol Almos, and Steve Callahan as the Friendsgiving dinner guests. Double Batch Daddy have been lounging with us from the beginning. The trio of Bax, Cal, and Dutch have been faithfully producing new material, often original material, each and every month. They're dear friends and faithful collaborators. We're grateful to have them around. Here's one of my most recent favorites of theirs. It's called Billion Feet. Oh. 
If I could sum up what Live from the Lounge is all about, I'd have to say that it's about embracing impermanence. Nothing stays the same. Everything is always changing. The good news is that the days and the seasons change and evolve in some predictable ways. You can pretty much count on the sun rising each day, and you can be sure it's going to set each evening. The days will be warmer than the nights. Spring will follow winter and segue into summer and fall and then back around to winter again. There's a cycle to the days and seasons that's reliable. And if we allow ourselves to groove with the rhythms of the seasons, we might recognize and embrace the changes that are constantly happening in our own journey through birth, growth, withering, death, and new life. It's the cycle of the days, the years, and our lifetimes. It's the way the world actually is. You can count on it. Even though it's constantly changing, everything is born, it grows, it withers, and it dies so that something new can be born. We lost our sweet, shaggy dog this summer. Once he'd come into our lives, it seemed like there was never a time that he wasn't with us. He just fit. He was a wise and mischievous pet. A perfect gentleman who wouldn't think twice about tearing a chipmunk apart. He was faithful and aloof, long-suffering and spiteful. He was highly treat-motivated. He loved long walks, and he went bonkers at the beach. We miss him every day. This George Harrison song, performed by Val Vigoda and Ryan O'Connell, pretty much sums up where we're at right now. The fact is, knowing that nothing is permanent doesn't make losing a loved one any easier. Rest well, Shaggy. You are a good dog. Sunrise doesn't last all morning A cloudburst doesn't last all day Seems my love is up 
and has left you with no warning It's not always gonna be this great All things must pass All things must pass away Sunset doesn't last all evening Mind can blow those clouds away After all this, my love is up and I must be leaving It's not always gonna be this great another day Now the darkness only stays at night time In the morning it will fade away Daylight is good at arriving at the right time It's not always Gonna be this gray. All things must pass. All things must pass away. All things must pass. All things must pass away. For our March episode, I wanted to explore the ways that we get back into life and work with intention and grace. In the course of the seasons, March is the rebirth of spring after our long winter's nap. If we're paying attention, the winter seasons of our lives are opportunities for us to look inward and let go of habits and ideas that are holding us back. It can be a time of preparation for growth to come, It can be an invitation to face our fears. For those who work in live performance, the global pandemic was like a two-year winter season. No one I know experienced this more acutely than David O. and his wife Michelle. 
We had a lovely conversation about how their professional life was put on hold in 2020 and how they learned to adapt to this radical change and how the challenges of the pandemic allowed them to nourish and deepen their roots as a family. I'm so glad you both are here. I remember, David, there was a period of time when I felt like I couldn't go out without seeing you. You go to the La Jolla Playhouse, Dave's conducting. Go to the Ovation Awards, Dave is leading the music. I went to the opening of Grand Park and you're up on a building conducting a pair of brass bands blasting out one of your arrangements. And it was like everywhere I went, there's Dave O, there's Dave O, there's Dave O. And I want you to talk a little bit about what that led you to um, in 2019, which led to your first move. And then, Michelle, I want to talk to you about the decision-making process that you had to go through um, in order to go along with that. Sure. So I had the highly unlikely career of a full-time professional musical director in the musical theater living in Los Angeles. Uh, and it was a particular time when there was enough going on that that was able to work for me and our family. And uh, the work was really exciting and, and, and led always to bigger and better things. And so naturally, it led to some roads that were away from L.A. Um, and I got invited to be the musical director for uh, a musical called Mr. Saturday Night, uh, which uh, is stars and is co-written by Billy Crystal, uh, based on his movie from the 1990s. Uh, and uh, the creative team is wonderful, and it includes the composer Jason Robert Brown, who's a longtime friend and collaborator of mine. Starting in 2017, uh, we did a few workshops here and there. And then uh, by 2019, the production was ready to move forward with a Broadway run. We were scheduled to open at the Nederlander Theater in, I believe it was February of 2020. We, as a family, pulled up our roots in Los Angeles and moved across the country to the suburbs of New York in Westport, Connecticut, uh, where we were getting ready for the, for the show to happen. And how old were your kids at that time? Caleb would have been 19. He was, uh, at that point, already, uh, I believe, a second-year student at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Uh, and Archer uh, would have been uh, 13. Michelle, what was the, the decision-making process like for you? You know, we've been doing this bicoastal thing for probably a decade now, where it's on a few months, off a few months. And, you know, we knew how to do that. It's not ideal, but we always felt so lucky that he was having this career and I was running the show and I was pretty good at running the show behind the scenes. And so it just seemed like, well, if we're going to do this, if we're going to make this happen, it was an ideal time in both of the kids' lives. I mean, the recipe looked great. We sort of made a big deal out of it. We showed up and we had, you know, our house ready for us. And it was all part of the adventure. Then the adventure <laughs> turns, doesn't it? And then <laughs> scheduled to open February 2020. I think that anybody who's, you know, been breathing for the last two years knows what happened in February 2020. Talk a little bit about the impact of that and how that changed your plans and what your next steps were. It felt like it all happened within a week. 
And Dave and I had just come out to LA for a week for, for some of his work. I think that was with Bronco Billy. We went to the ovations. We were like seeing everybody. This is how we thought it was going to be. We were going to be bi-coastal, but only visiting LA. Archer came home on the school bus and he texted me on the bus. He said, the school shut down. And then I think within two days, Dave was, they, they put him on a red eye back. So for us, it felt all encompassing very quickly. And it was very frightening, very fast. As soon as we actually got to Connecticut, we got word that the February opening had been postponed. It was originally postponed for scheduling reasons that didn't have anything to do with COVID. And then when everything shut down, it was, you know, it, one needn't have even asked. It, it, we, we knew it was clear that, that uh, Mr. Saturday Night was going to get postponed uh, somewhat indefinitely. Suddenly, the, not only that gig, but the entire industry that I'm a part of uh, was, was just completely shut down. And, and um, you know, a lot of people uh, were really struggling with that work. So there you were in Connecticut. Your means of income completely taken away. What sort of changes did you have to make to adapt to that new reality? One of the first things I did uh, was I, I needed a project to work on. So I dove in with my collaborator, Janet Roston, and we thought of the idea of uh, let's, uh, let's, let's put a video together. Let's put, let's, 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 let's do a video where everybody's recording and, and singing and dancing in their own homes. Uh, and we can do this as a, as a, uh, as an encouragement for people to, uh, donate money to a charity, uh, to help artists. It quickly turned into a connection with the Actors Fund and a connection with the composer and songwriter, Mark Shaman. And, and, and we reached out to him and we said, we're really interested in doing a video with You Can't Stop the Beat. Would you give us your permission to do that? And he said, not only do you have my permission, but can I please be involved as well? And we said, well, sure, absolutely, yay. And next thing we knew, we had a video with over 150 different, different performers of all walks of life, professionals, amateurs, people who had been involved with Hairspray, uh, a number of celebrities, uh, all singing along to the the this you know infectious and high energy and fun song and it became this experience of creating joy in the world we raised a lot of money for the actors fund the video has now uh almost two years later uh we're almost up to about three million views it was so fun to have that project to dive into at a time when there was just nothing and ultimately the the house in Connecticut became unsustainable. We were totally isolated. We had not even had the chance to make real friends in the community. I mean, Archer was still still making friends at school and we couldn't get to anybody in New York, um, you know, and it started to, to create a, just a, a really difficult environment for everyone. And then it became really clear by the midsummer, nothing was gonna change. Dave, do you want to talk more about the, the houses? In the small town of Pawpaw, Michigan, my maternal family has been there for decades. There are two houses right next door to each other on a little lake uh, that my grandparents built in the 1980s and 90s. 
and uh, my parents are in one of the house. Uh, I have three sets of aunts and uncles, all within about five minutes drive, uh, and cousins just a little bit further away. My family jokes that we aren't the entire town of Paw Paw, Michigan, but we are the entire Democratic Party of Paw Paw, Michigan. <laughs> at, at any rate, um, what, one of these houses was available for someone to live in. Uh, simultaneously, uh, we needed to make a big change uh, to maximize our own resources. And so strangely, going from the suburbs of New York to a, a, a real rural environment, uh, we actually ended up being less isolated there because we had more contact with family. We'd have eggs from, from aunts and uncles. We'd have bread. We would share food. There's a, there's a vineyard uh, that's part of the family. There were just so many blessings and gifts and the connection with the family and being able to see people and feel so loved. And I'm getting really choked up about this, but to feel like people really have your back. And um, I just love Dave's family so much. And I'm so grateful to what they did for us and that they let us be really messy and they let us just fall apart for a little while. And how long did you spend in Papa? <laughs> a year. A year. A year. Then came, I think, the most, I don't know if it's the most difficult or challenging, but you want to talk a little bit about getting the call uh, to come back to New York and then Michelle uh, about Archer's call back to Los Angeles and now where you guys are today. Well, I'm trying to remember when it was that I got word uh, that the show was happening. I feel like everything happened within about a four week period around June. Yeah, yeah. So I got word around that time that the show was back on. We were gonna start rehearsals in the new year in January of 2022 for a March opening. And so everything was suddenly happening again. We figured we'd all come back East. Uh, and we were in the midst of planning that when we got word that Archer had been accepted to LA County High School of the Arts. You could have knocked me over with a feather. The end of June, I'm driving to the barn, Caleb is with me and I get an email. And it's the same email that Caleb got because Caleb graduated from there. Congratulations. <laughs> I don't think I stopped for three days. One, what the hell am I going to do? Two, what's this going to look like? Oh my gosh, we're going to be bi-coastal again. And I think the hardest part of this was the obvious decision was right there in front of us. I am, from my perspective, Archer gave up more than any of us. Caleb had his life secure in Boston and he loves Boston. He loves his school. He loves Boston. Arch had been homeschooled for what, about a year? This to me was an anchor for him. I mean, it was one, a dream come true, even if we were in LA, two, this was his world he was carving out for himself. Where are you guys now and how do you make this? The dream was bi-coastal, right? Let's be bi-coastal. Uh, I don't know that the dream ever included the idea that one of you might be on one coast <laughs> and the other on the other. Yeah, it's a big adjustment and it's, and it's, it's a, it's a sort of an ironic adjustment after having been, uh, uh, you know, cooped up together for all of pandemic in a little house in Michigan and through the the coldest winter that we've ever lived through. 
Um, going from that to uh, now being completely sp spread across the con continent, you know, uh, my head's spinning. We knew it was going to be tough to be apart. Uh, we knew it was going to be logistically inconvenient and expensive. Um, uh, but we also knew we had to do this, we, that we had to uh, allow Archer to pursue this great possibility at LAXA. Uh, and we also uh, needed for me to be able to do this gig. So we said, I guess we're doing this version of it. People say, where's home? And I say, it's where my people are. I'm about to go see Dave for a week. And so that's really nice. We depend on each other a lot. We communicate a lot. Um, we haven't hit any hiccups. It's been six weeks that we've been doing this and it's gonna be a, a crazy spring. There's a graduation, there's an opening, there's so many things happening between now and summer. We'll be actually spending a lot of time together in the months ahead. Uh, these last couple of months, you know, as a family, uh, we've made sure to prioritize phone time. We prioritize time for checking in and purposefully checking in uh, more than we might necessarily purposefully do so if we were all in person together. Is there, and not that there needs to be, um, but is there for either or both of you um, a takeaway? Is it too early to say? It is pretty early to say. I mean, one thing I would say is uh, it's been kind of a motto of ours for a long time that uh, we can do hard things. It, for many years, was kind of a joke, like, okay, we can do this, we can do hard things. And then 2020 hits, and we've got some really hard things, some really hard decisions, and some real challenges in terms of, you know, how we make life work. And we held on to that motto. Of, of we can do hard things and tried to keep a, a, a smile on our face about it and a, and a sense of humor about it. And for myself, I wasn't always successful in both of those things, uh, but I always tried to come back to it. And doing hard things is what we're doing. Like so many of us, David, Michelle, Archer, and Caleb learned that home is more than the place you live. Home happens because of the people you live with. This sentiment is summed up beautifully in this Billy Joel song performed by John Ballinger and Ruby Farley. It's from our Going Home episode. When you look into my eyes And you see the crazy gypsy in my soul It always comes as a surprise When I feel my withered roots begin to grow
I travel all my life And I never get to stop and settle down Long as I have you by my side There's a roof above and good walls all around You're my castle, you're my cabin And my instant pleasure dome I need you in my house Cause you're my Music is really important to me. I consider myself to be an okay musician. I haven't really applied the time and focus I'd need to in order to be great. But I can read music well enough. I can bang out chords on a couple of musical instruments, and I do love to sing. I'm absolutely positive that music is what carried me through my school days. The hours singing and playing with all the various choirs and bands gave me a sense of accomplishment that was woefully lacking in Algebra 2 and that history class that the football coach was forced to teach. I've come back to the lessons I've learned as an amateur musician over and over again on the lounge. But the big question from March is probably my favorite. I titled it, Why March? But it easily might have been called... Why in God's name did I ever think joining marching band was a good idea? If you're a regular listener to The Lounge, you'll remember that we started the year with a dream rather than a resolution. Because we understand that it takes planning and intention to create sustainable change in our lives. We spent February modifying those dreams by discovering what's holding us back and letting go so we can move forward. And here we are, with a clear vision and a lightened load. We're ready to march. And yet, the instruction or the order to march, for me, is fraught. In my days on this earth, I've performed with a lot of groups. I've been in Shakespeare companies, I've been a singing waiter, I've sung in countless choirs and played in countless bands. I've performed in front of audiences of thousands and i performed for less than 10. I love making art with people. Hasn't always been easy, hasn't always been fun, but it's usually been worth it. There is one performing group I chose to be a part of over and over again that still mystifies me. Marching band. I joined a marching band my freshman year in high school, and that meant a trip to marching band camp. Now, I've spoken about my other experience with band camp before, the year between fifth and sixth grade, where I had an epiphany where reading music finally made sense to me. That was a life-changing week. Marching band camp was a little more like an S&M retreat for teens where band camp had consisted mostly of rehearsals in a shady courtyard, concert band in the morning, jazz band in the afternoon, with lots of canoeing and swimming and hiking and snacking and lounging thrown in between. On the first day of marching band camp, we all lined up on a dusty field in a hundred-degree heat, and we learned to stand at attention 
Middle fingers on the seam of our pants. Shoulders back and down. Head held high. Knees straight but not locked. Don't lock your knees! The conductor and the upperclassmen would scream at us. We found out why when the first trumpet player fell face first into the dirt with the rigidity of a two-by-four and the stomach-churning sound of a 150-pound sack of meat hurled off the back of a truck. I think he broke his nose. But it's possible that he just took an ice pack and a Gatorade in the shade, shook it off, and came back for more. Once we'd all learned to stand still without losing consciousness, we began the task of marching up and down the field. The key was to instill in us the glide step, a precise 22 and a half inch stride that rolled so smoothly from heel to toe that the rest of our bodies wouldn't bounce up and down at all. Our phalanx would appear to simply glide smoothly across the field. We practiced with books balanced on our heads, keeping our heads up and our eyes forward. The key to the 22 and a half inch stride was the eight to five, eight steps for every five yards marked on the hot and dusty practice field with white chalk lines. The drummers would mark time and we would count off. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, line. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, line. This is how we spent most of the first day and the second and many future rehearsals marching up and down the field. My feeling about this aspect of marching band is best summed up by this clip from Monty Python's Meaning of Life. Everybody else, quite content to join in with my little scheme of marching up and down the square. Sarge? Yes, Wycliffe, what is it? Well, I'm uh, learning the piano. Learning the piano? Yes, Sarge. And I suppose you want to go and practice, eh? Marching up and down the square, not good enough for you, eh? Well... Right, off you go! Now, what about the rest of you? We went on to learn how to turn to the right and turn to the left and turn all the way around with uniformity and precision. We learned to play classic Sousa marches and square versions of popular songs really loudly. If I remember correctly, there was an arrangement of Earth, Wind & Fire's September that had been run through an arrangement for marching band machine designed to suck all of the playfulness and joy out of any song. And then there were the uniforms. Twelve and a half pounds of polyester that managed somehow to provide in equal measure exactly no protection from the cold and exactly no relief from the sun. The two-foot-tall furry hat called a shako, would balance precariously and uncomfortably on one's head as you marched for miles at a time, intermittently playing your instrument as loudly as you possibly could. Looking back, I find the impact-to-reward ratio of participating in marching band to be almost comically low. You put in so much effort, one literally spends hours learning how to walk, turn right and left, and play lousy music louder than anyone wants to hear it, and your reward is a fleeting glance at a parade? Or the opportunity to sit on metal bleachers in the worst possible clothes every Friday night from late summer to early winter? Why did I do it? 
Why did I go back and keep doing it year after year? Why did I think it was a good idea to join UCLA's marching band when I was 21 years old? I knew better. I can't tell you what compelled me to keep going back. It's a mystery. To this day, though, I do love the sound of a marching band. And I celebrate the precision and the passion of the folks who are dedicated to this art form and who do it well. The truth of the marching band experience may be that the beginning of any endeavor is rarely glamorous. There's something truly wonderful about belonging to an orchestra or a choir. The chance to be a small part in a larger organism that brings pleasure to others to be at the center of a sound that can only be made by a large number of people all working together is a powerful feeling. It's worth the time it takes in rehearsal to learn that when the key changes from B-flat to C, you need to play a B-natural or it's going to sound awful. And there's a good possibility it's going to sound awful for a bit until you learn and internalize the roadmap. There is a point in every rehearsal of every play I've ever been in or directed where the actors are just starting to put their scripts down, and it's awful to watch. I remember talking to a director about this moment one day after a rehearsal. That was painful, I said, and he replied, This is the time in the rehearsal when we come closest to living out the actor's nightmare, where you're on stage and you have no idea what play you're in. It passes. But yeah, it's painful. Remember the story of the little red hen? The red hen invites all the other animals on the farm to help her plant and grow some wheat. They all turn her down. Later, she invites them to help harvest the grain and grind it into flour. No one wants to help. After that, she invites them to help her make and bake the bread. Everyone is too busy. But once the bread is baked and ready... Everyone wants to help eat it. The little red hen is a marcher. She knows that the road to delicious bread is paved with work that no one wants to do. The members of your favorite band are marchers. The shows we go to see and the albums we love to listen to are products of years of unglamorous work, learning to play or sing. Your favorite athletes have done a metric shit ton of marching up and down the square, the diamond, the pitch, or the ice to be able to make it all look easy on a Sunday afternoon. The food we eat is a product of countless marchers who plant, grow, ship, prepare, and serve it to us. You want a beach body? It's time to march. You want to lose 20 pounds? The unglamorous part of that journey starts right now. Writing a novel or a screenplay? It'll be fun when it's done. You'll have a blast watching others enjoy it. It's going to take a lot of marching up and down the square to get there. Truth is, it's worth it to work hard, to achieve something beautiful, productive, or useful. It's worth it to put in the sweaty, lonely hours to feel good about something you've accomplished. Just know that the most important part of making your dreams come true involves a dedication to do everything necessary to make it happen. Just make sure all of your marching is taking you somewhere you actually want to go. 
As we spring into action, we want to hear where you're marching to. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or email us at livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com. And that's our unashamed and unabashed Best of the Lounge. We hope this retrospective will be a good excuse for you to go back and revisit your favorite lounges from the past two years. And if you're getting something out of this podcast, would you help us spread the word by following, subscribing, and donating if you're able? Head over to livefromthelounge.podcast.com, hit the donate button, and drop us a little something to help us keep the good vibes coming your way month after month. Here's the who did what. Live from the Lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Matt and Carol Almos write our radio shows. Double Batch Daddy is our house band. John Ballinger wrote our theme song and arranged and performed Home with Ruby Farley and Sunshine Day with Laura Martin. Charles Dayton provides the sound design for The Big Question. And special thanks to David O. and Michelle East for sharing their journey with us. Mr. Saturday Night closes September 7th. If you're anywhere near Broadway, make sure to drop in and see it before it wraps up its run. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with an all-new collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge. To lounge.